Welcome, everybody, and thanks, everybody, for joining. So we're, we're super excited to have this awesome group of folks with us. Uh, we're going to spend an hour talking about everything marketplaces, so stories about what worked, what hasn't, how 2020 impacted people, the cold start problem, scaling. We're going we're gonna to try to cover everything. Um, and as Andrew was saying, today is a good day to have this conversation because this morning we published the annual Marketplace 100 list. You can check the whole thing out at a16z.com slash Marketplace 100 which for those who don't know, it's a compilation of the largest and fastest growing consumer facing marketplaces and private companies. Um, and there, there's a few caveats in there. So that's why we get about 30 uh, requests a minute wondering why weren't they're not in there. But uh, it basically uses second measure data, uh, which is which is credit card data. So it focuses on kind of uh, consumer facing marketplaces. Um, and kind of before we get into the conversation, I want to just give a quick highlight reel of, of the article and also let you know who we've got with us today. So a few interesting things. So one is that the biggest marketplace this year was Instacart, which uh, is the grocery delivery marketplace for those who don't know. Uh, it accounted for uh, kind of crazy 71% of all of the GMV represented in the marketplace 100. Um, so that's kind of crazy. So for reference, Airbnb was number one last year with just over 30%. Uh, and I was really impressed then, uh, but, but Airbnb Air, or Instacart more than doubled it. You, you, you might want to uh, explain the graduation thing. Yeah. So, so the other thing we did is, is, um, for marketplaces that went public, um, or were acquired because we don't include kind of public and, and acquired companies on the list. So companies like Airbnb or DoorDash. Uh, that were on the list in 2019 um, kind of graduated off the list this year. Um, so, it, so it's just private companies um, and, and that's why Instacart was leading the pack. Um, the second kind of fun fact we have uh, is that two of the fastest growing categories this year were uh, one celebrity engagement, i.e. Cameo, uh, and two wholesale marketplaces, uh, which included Fair, uh, which joined some other categories like outdoor travel, secondhand fashion, uh, music. So we're fortunate enough to have Max, the CEO of Fair, joining us, and I think Steve joined as well. Um, yep. Steve's the CEO He's of Cameo. Down there. Hey, Steve. Hey, guys. Um, so Cameo, Cameo was number thirty-one, and Fair was number eighteen. Um, so they were, and they were also two of the fastest-growing companies this year. Um, so they were able to kind of grow uh, with significant scale, which which is super impressive. Uh, but the fastest-growing marketplace of the year was Whatnot, uh, which is a live shopping collectibles marketplace. Uh, we've got Grant, the founder of that, on with us too. And and then the third, hey Grant, and then, no, the, third thing, and then the third thing we've got uh, is that we had some super interesting trends on how our kind of behavior shifted throughout the year. Uh, we went from normal things like concerts and restaurants in Q1 to like crazy amounts of food delivery into Q2 uh, to a period in Q3 when people just started like moving around the country and also settling in for the long haul and spending on things like furniture and moving services like. Uh, and then in Q4, we got like creative or maybe everybody was just started to go insane. Um, but we found new ways to entertain ourselves with things like collectibles and shoes and fashion and all these, uh, all these really fun consumer things. Um, and so on that note, we've got a few of the folks that kind of represent what happened throughout this year. So we've got Melody, who's the, the CEO of StyleSeat, uh, which is a marketplace for stylists and beauty and wellness professionals. Um, which I'm sure had a pretty wild year this year, but still managed to be uh, number nine on the list, uh, despite all the madness. Uh, Hello. We have, welcome. And then we have uh, Joseph, who's the CEO of Neighbor, uh, which is uh, Airbnb for self-storage. And I think I got the last storage unit in San Francisco as we were moving last summer. 
Um, so I'm sure it's been a crazy year for you too. Yeah, good to good to be on. And then uh, I think we've also got Eddie on here as well. Um, so Eddie is the CEO of Goat, um, which is the the sneaker marketplace, um, which which also was uh, was was in the top ten this year uh, again. And, and Eddie, we've been working with Eddie for years. I did one of the most uh, unusual pivots uh, I have ever experienced in uh, in digital. So uh, maybe you can describe that at some point. Yep. I also say, Eddie, of all the amazing companies represented here, Eddie has taken more of my personal money than everybody else put together. <laughs> uh, Melody will dispute that notion. <laughs> Suriname's hard to beat. So, yeah, we'll, we'll chat, Melody. That's awesome. Um, cool. So then in, in addition to all the, the amazing founders, we got, um, we got the whole gang from E16Z here. So we've got Jeff, uh, who helped build the original... Uh, online marketplace at eBay. He was the CEO of OpenTable, and he sits on a lot of amazing, the board of a lot of amazing marketplace companies like Airbnb, Instacart. Uh, we got Andrew, who is ex-Uber, invested in a ton of marketplaces. He's writing the book on the cold start problem. Uh, we've got Connie and Ann, uh, who did our investment in whatnot, and then uh, Sriram, our, our sneaker aficionado, uh, who's who I think invested in a bunch of these marketplaces. Uh, slash well. Clubhouse influencer. Yes. Right. <laughs> slash Elon Texter. <laughs> Um, cool. So uh, maybe we should just jump into it. Um, and so the thing I wanted to start with was actually um, starting with the elephant in the room when we talk about 2020, which is obviously COVID. Um, so last year was like pretty unique and unpredictable uh, on a lot of levels. Uh, and I think all of you run businesses that were kind of pretty directly impacted by it. But at least based on the Marketplace 100, it seems as if uh, things are thriving. So I would love to hear kind of how the lockdowns impacted you uh, and how you kind of manage to manage to manage your way through them, I guess. Uh, and maybe we can start with Melody, the, the CEO of Stylesheet, since I know salons were one of the, the early flashpoints for this whole thing. You know, it's interesting because I broke my leg in a gnarly ski accident um, at the at the very end of 2019, and kicking off 2020, I was like, "This is still going to be my year. This is going to be our year. This is going to be a great year." And I kicked off our fundraise at the beginning of the year with a broken leg, driving up and down Sand Hill Road. Like leg was just, I shouldn't have been out. I had to be in a machine in the car when we were driving. It was just so crazy. Um, and at the very end of our process, I think the week that we were expecting a handful of term sheets, the pandemic hit. <laughs> <laughs> and I hadn't raised in five years, right? We've been happily sort of profitable or running the business and a pandemic hit and it was just crazy, which changed everything. So we- We met that week. We met that yes. week in the San Francisco office. Yeah, I hobbled I in and I was in crutches and in a tremendous amount of pain. It was awful. It was wonderful to see you, Jeff, of course, as always. Um, but, you know, that was certainly not what I expected. Um, and so we had planned on doing a big consumer push and really starting to turn on and drive the demand side of our business because we, previous to this, were 100% organic driven, 100% word of mouth. We'd laid an awesome foundation for Marketplace. We're about to turn it on and the pandemic hit. And so for us, what that meant was obviously rethinking everything. It doesn't make sense to drive ads to people to go to hair salons when uh, hair styling is illegal um, in much of the country. And so we took it as an opportunity to rethink everything. 
Um, we obviously didn't move forward with any of that and instead chose to focus more on the supply side of our marketplace and deepening our take rate and also deepening our ability to grow the revenue of the supply side of our business. Um, we actually put $20 million of revenue into the pockets of our SMBs during 2020. That was revenue that they wouldn't have seen otherwise. And that's something that we're really proud of. Um, and just strengthened the overall quality of our ability to, to proactively grow their revenue. Um, and while it was a different year, it was a challenging year, it was a horrible year in a lot of ways, we ended up uh, you know, staying incredibly focused and ultimately being a stronger business by the end of it. Um, and it's really benefited us today, but, but yeah, that was, a that was a crazy set of circumstances. Yeah. I'm so curious too, Melody, because I think just as a customer, like I was texting with my stylist and trying to, you know, the salon would be closed and then it would reopen and the restrictions were just changing so constantly. And I was just curious, like, how did you maintain that, you know, communication with your, your supply side and how did you um, continue that trust during this difficult time for everybody? Well, what we found is that a lot of stylists, I mean, everyone was freaking out because they're brand new entrepreneurs for the most part. The entire industry has shifted from everyone was an employee a handful of years ago to now the vast majority, about 90% of hairstylists in the United States are independent contractors. And so they're all new entrepreneurs. And there was a huge panic because it was like from state to state, from county to county, what's the protocol? What does COVID mean? What is PPE? You know, how do I keep my clients safe? I can't stay closed for a meaningful period of time, right? Um, I can't not make any money. I'm, I'm feeding my family. And so for us, we took a very serious uh, responsibility to help disseminate information, to share best practices of, of here's what other businesses are doing in your area across the country um, and to just try and be a source of truth as opposed to a source of opinion um, to help highlight here's what some people are doing here's what other people are doing um, and here are resources here's where you can buy PPE and here's the features that we're launching. So we launched digital appointments, for example. So you could actually, we had stylists that were making more money on digital appointments, you know, $20,000, $30,000 a month teaching their clients how to cut their own bangs, <laughs> which is not wow. something any of us had ever anticipated. <laughs> it's crazy. But like, think about it. You're at home. Yeah. You need to get a bang trim. Like you're not trying to do it yourself. Of course, you'll pay someone, you know, 50 bucks or $100 to, to show you what's going on. Um, and so, you know, we launched a bunch of digital services, virtual appointments, gift cards, prepayments, um, lots of interesting features to help our businesses maintain their revenue during this time and maintain their client relationships. Um, and it was, you know, it was really unprecedented, but we're like, our responsibility is even more important. You know, there's more at stake now. And so every single thing we release needs to put more money into our businesses' pockets. How, uh, Melody, maybe one quick follow-up. How, how does the business look today versus how it looked in like Q1 of last year? Like, like what, do you, what do you think has kind of has, has shifted that will never shift back? Well, we have been in the middle of a, uh, this started about two years ago, but we used to be purely a SaaS business where we were an operating system for our beauty professionals. They would pay us, we'd give them access to tools. 
we've now fully transitioned to where the vast majority of our revenue now comes from marketplace features. And those features are us proactively growing the revenue of our businesses and taking a cut of that upside. So you can think about um, dynamic pricing, right? Surge pricing for hair. You can think about new client delivery where we're putting new clients directly into the chairs of our professionals, um, filling their cancellations for them, right? Doing things that they couldn't do otherwise, taking little cuts of that upside, but we're driving, you know, 300, 400% more revenue to a professional over a period of a couple of years um, than they would make otherwise. And, and we just weren't able to do that before. Those, those features are things that we tripled down on during the pandemic because um, we knew that their appreciation, you know, their need for revenue would not go away. And so let's make that our absolute core expertise. That's awesome. That's so interesting. Um, I, I wanted I wanted to transition it to Max uh, at Fair because I you know I have to be honest I did a little bit of a double take when I saw how fast Fair and the wholesale category grew over the last year. Um, I, I actually would have thought it would have been tough sledding. So can you tell us what happened to you last year uh, and how kind of COVID impacted Fair? Yeah. So for for just as a, a quick uh, intro for those that aren't familiar with our business, uh, Fair is a, a wholesale marketplace where we have independent retailers buying from brands. You could think of this as like a, a trade show replacement um, where retailers are buying products to stock in their stores. And actually like 80% of our retailers at the beginning of the pandemic, 80% uh, of our retailers were had a brick and mortar presence. Um, and so, yeah, to your point, it, it was surprising to us <laughs> that uh, we saw the, the growth that we did, honestly. The, at the beginning of the pandemic, um, sort of similar to the story that Melody was telling, um, you know, we we just had no idea how things were going to play out. It's like crazy to think back a year from now um, how scary things were. Um, you know, both the sort of I think all of us were dealing with with craziness in our personal lives, but then on top of that, um, you know, we had just gotten to the point where it felt like we kind of made it. Like we just raised. Uh, billion dollar round. We had a bunch of money in the bank. The marketplace network effects were were working. We were growing really quickly. Like it, it finally felt like we could breathe a little bit. And then all of a sudden, you know, the, the business of our customers became illegal. Um, and those initial moments, I think, were were pretty touch and go. And we saw a huge hit to our numbers for the first like month. Um, like revenue was down, I think, sixty or seventy percent. Uh, and then gradually over the course of the summer and then really accelerating into the fall, um, business started to pick up. And actually, we ended up re-accelerating year over year in Q4. And now we're growing faster than we're growing than we've grown. Um, you know, in Q1, we were growing faster uh, even without the the year-on-year -year pandemic comps. Um, we were growing faster than, than we had since we were, you know, a, a very small startup. Um, and I think there's a couple of reasons for that. The first is that the business of our retailers recovered much, much faster than we expected, like kind of defying logic in some ways. Um, and we really, we've spent a bunch of time digging in to try to understand what's happening to make sure that it's not some weird mirage or something wrong with our data. Um, but the, I think there's three reasons why the retailer sales have recovered. The first is that our retailers have 
uh, adapted really quickly to the new situation that that they're in, where a lot of them, you know, were locked down or now in it reduced capacity, um, where they they started selling online, they started doing live selling, and they were really creative in the way that they uh, figured out how to adapt to a world where you know they 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 couldn't rely as much on their stores. I think that was actually a really positive change. It was something that needed to happen, um, but I think a lot of them were kind of slow. To, to pick up on it. Like most of our retailers at the beginning of the pandemic didn't even have a website. And now all of them do. And many of them are doing a lot of really creative things where they're offering same day delivery in their, uh, in their neighborhoods and you know, are just figuring out ways to leverage their unique advantages, their communities, they're selling on Facebook. Um, you know, they're, they're using their personalities and their storytelling abilities to do live selling. So it's been really cool to see the way they've adapted. I think the second thing that is driving their recovery is there's been a real rush to support small businesses that I think we've seen across a number of different verticals, but I think retail in particular benefited from it, where like the shop local movement was already a, a big thing. And I think it, it benefited hugely from people kind of thinking about what life would be like without these small businesses in their lives, um, because you know for a period of time, they weren't. And I think there was a lot of fear that people had, like us, that all these businesses would close. And, and I think it led people to really support small businesses in a way that um, goes even beyond what, what the shop local movement had accomplished previously. And then the final thing, and the thing that is actually probably the biggest driver is that, honestly, this has ended up being more of a services recession than uh, a goods recession. Retail in general, and even brick and mortar retail, like you look at Best Buy, you look at Nordstrom, um, you know, their sales aren't down that much. And actually with the stimulus now hitting, um, some of them are even even outperforming expectations. And our retailers are, have certainly been beneficiaries of that as well. So that's, there's a whole category that, that those are the three drivers of retailer sales recovering. And then the the other really big reason why I think we're growing even faster um, on top of you know that that baseline recovery uh, is our main competitors trade shows uh, and trade shows have not been happening really at all like they've been happening but in it really reduced capacity um, and so we've been the beneficiaries of you know our retailers are doing much better than expected and in fact have actually fully recovered and are now up even over the the 2019 comps. Um, in terms of their sales, and then our competitors are still wiped out, and I don't think they'll ever recover. Um, honestly, based on you know all the conversations that we've had with retailers, I think a lot of retailers have learned new habits um, that aren't really going to return. So, one of the things that I've always said is you know you you don't want to be, you never want to be benefiting from a pandemic. Um, I don't think anybody wants pandemic to happen, but uh, it's it's definitely better than than the alternative. So. Um, it's been a wild year for us, but I think the the growth that we've seen over the course of the last six months has been has been surprising, but but really encouraging, um, both what it means for our business and honestly what it means I think for for us as a society in terms of the way that these small businesses have bounced back. That's fascinating, and, and so like one of the most interesting things is just like how the the more flexible companies through COVID have been able to kind of thrive, whereas the more rigid ones have not. And obviously, being a marketplace, they're kind of one of the most uh, one of the most flexible business models out there. Um, but Steve, Steve, I wanted to go to you next uh, and actually hear about uh, hear about how things happen from the the cameo side. 
um, and, and how the world changed for you over the last year. Sure. So very similar to Melody and Max, when COVID first hit, we had no idea uh, what the hell was going to happen to our business. Uh, we were coming off a really crazy growth year in 2019. And I think, uh, you know, Cameo along with Fair, I think we're the two fastest growing marketplaces uh, on the Marketplace 100, the, the original list, so 2019 growth. So we were entering uh, our 2020 year with a lot of momentum. Um, at the time, there was probably two main reasons on the supply side why talent wouldn't have joined Cameo. And we were starting to have like this zeitgeist moment and the flywheel was really starting to rip. But if I could distill the top two reasons why talent weren't joining Cameo coming into COVID, it was number one, I make too much money. And number two, I have no time. And, you know, on March 11th, 12th, when everything shut down, you know, I think really starting with that Wednesday night where Rudy Gobert on the uh, Utah Jazz tested positive, the NBA shut down, the market crashed. You know, we were in a very uh, scary situation where we saw our, our sales immediately drop, like when the markets crashed through that first weekend, 50, 60%. And as, uh, as Cameo right now is like certainly not a must have, but it's really like a, a nice to have and, you know, kind of like a, a fun uh, gift that you can send people. Um, in a world where it looked like we were maybe heading to the next Great Depression, it felt like we might have one of those consumer discretionary products that was not in people's budget. So, you know, pretty immediately, like our executive team shifted into wartime mode and started thinking about, you know, all types of different scenarios. Uh, we had a really late uh, Sunday meeting that I did with my board. And, you know, we talked about every cost that we could slash in the business you know, co-founders all took our salaries to zero. Uh, we got rid of benefits like our, you know, commuter stipend or our gym pass, you know, things that we just knew over COVID we couldn't use. And we're in a very desperate attempt to make sure that we weren't going to have to lay anybody off. But again, when you're down 50, 60%, wow. really, wow. you really have no idea uh, what's going to happen. And then something really crazy happened. Like, as quickly as we kind of jumped in the shell and and felt like we were, you know, needing to hang on for dear life, like the business just rebounded. And, and really quickly, what we saw was tailwinds on both the supply and demand side of our market. So on the supply side, the talent that were suddenly uh, that that had previously been worried about, um, you know, not that they made too much money or they didn't have time. They found themselves like on their couch, just like you and I, and uh, and they missed their fans and they wanted to find a way to connect. And, you know, we had this rush um, in, you know, late March, April, May of so many talent that had told us no repeatedly over the years that were suddenly like answering that DM that they'd, you know, left on red for two years or, you know, getting in touch with the person that had emailed them or telling that friend that had referred them to come on, that they were ready to join the platform. And we just saw a massive rush of so many like classic people that um, that, you know, we'd been chasing for years. People like Mike Tyson or Mandy Moore um, that, you know, in many ways are, are, are Chuck Norris, people that are cameo gold and finally were coming through uh, separately. One thing that was really interesting, if we had had this clubhouse discussion a year ago, I know the app wasn't alive yet, uh, but none of us would know who Carol Baskin was. 
And we started seeing these like cultural moments that everyone was sharing. You know, Tiger King came out and every single person in the country saw it within like two or three days of each other. And, you know, within a day, we were getting these people who, you know, two years before, a year before, were working for minimum wage at, you know, zoos in Oklahoma that suddenly could make 50 grand in a week on the platform. And, you know, that started to, to, really, to, to really snowball and, and help on the supply side. So, you know, really famously in, in August or infamously, I, I did an article with the New York Times and I said that at their core, all celebrities are gig economy workers. And in music, you know, musicians call their concert a gig. Stand-up comedians get paid per show. Athletes get paid per game. Every single person in the creative class found themselves unemployed at one time, and that really forced them to turn to direct-to-fan monetization uh, for the first time. When we started the business, going direct to your fans for payment was seen as incredibly taboo. And you know, now you look at it, and the, the larger creator economy has just caught on fire. It's really clear that in a world where the there's an exponential amount of talent on earth, but the underlying business models of sports, of entertainment, of YouTube, of music, those biz- those revenues are all growing linearly, all the legacy businesses. So talent are having to go directly to their fans for monetization. So that ended up really picking up steam as a thesis. And then the last thing I think that was really critical was the fact that not only talent were sitting at home um, you know, not able to in- entertain the people like they love, play music for them, you know, compete in basketball or any of the other things that were going on. But on the consumer side, uh, you know, I-, I don't know about you guys, but I-, I didn't see my parents for a year. But Mother's Day happened. Father's Day happened. Uh, kids were graduating from high school and college. People were having babies. People are getting engaged. Life's big moments didn't stop because of COVID, but we couldn't share them in person with the people that we love. And Cameo became a way that on the consumer side, people started, you know, sharing digital love. They were using that to tell people, I love you. They were replacing, you know, a bottle of champagne that they might have brought over to their birthday dinner with, uh, you know, with a Cameo from, you know, some star from Dawson's Creek that they they loved watching, that, that you know, you knew that that person whose birthday was loved watching when they were, you know, 14, 15 years old. And we just started seeing this massive spike as we you know headed into uh mother's day and father's day and then as the as the economy started to open back up and people got back we've now seen every segment of our marketplace really except for live music get back to work and the thing that's been really cool is that the talent came on the high nps of the product uh has kept them on you know once the world's come back growth continued to accelerate uh through christmas and you know, the marketplace went from 20 million in GMV to, to 100 in a year. And uh, and we ended up growing just as fast, you know, at a much higher base than we did in, in 2019 when we were kind of at the, the top of the charts there. So just such a roller coaster year. Um, and then the very last thing that I should mention, and, and Andrew, this kind of cracks me up that we're having this conversation today. But yeah. I remember sitting at that dinner that we did in Salesforce Tower a couple of years ago, and we were talking about, um, you know, being a startup outside of San Francisco. And, you know, I remember, you know, you had pretty strong beliefs that, you know, being in the Valley, you could always recruit a better team. And, and that, you know, for at least for, for you, like that was pretty far away from your thesis of backing a company, not in a traditional tech center. And we look at what's happened 
I took Cameo fully distributed. And prior to that, we only hired people in Chicago and LA. Uh, we've since opened it up. We've gotten rid of our offices. We've hired people in 28 states. Uh, I'm living in Miami now, along with, I think, you know, <laughs> half of like- Steven, I'm, I'm in Austin, by the way. Yeah, so yeah, we're, yeah. We're, we're, we're in the twin, uh, you know, I, I, think, you know I, I see your pictures in Austin. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, it's been such an unlock. We completely rebuilt our executive team this year, hiring people, our COOs in the Bay, our CFOs right. in New York. And, and that's, right. we've opened this up. And I think COVID has totally changed the game because you never thought you'd be in Austin. I never, sure as hell, <laughs> at the beginning of the year. But I think that's, that's right. the enduring trends for all of these marketplace businesses. That's right. Well, yeah. And I think there's something about marketplaces in particular because it's two-sided where, when you have some economic instability, like the supply side, you know, and the demand side, they kind of like react differently, right? Even if, if even if the demand side's, you know, doing, doing a little bit less, um, uh, you know, buying then the supply side kind of needs that. But uh, what, what I want to do next actually is I want to just quickly, you know, transition, get, hand over the mic to, to Jeff also, um, and, uh, and, and talk a little bit about, um, uh, you know, marketplaces and network effects. So Jeff, do you want to go for it? Sure. Um, what, you know, uh, the definition of a network effect is that the business gets more valuable based on the more people who use it. And, um, you know, one of the things I've loved about marketplaces, you know, digital marketplaces since I joined eBay in 99, God, 22 years, um, is uh, that, that marketplaces, if you, if you win your segment, tend towards network effects, which gives a, uh, gives defensibility, which is what, um, you know, companies, need a lot of companies can grow fast but needing to defend your lead is critical and you know marketplaces for me are are uh, are the you know are perfectly suited to develop those network effects that help uh, help defend profits defend growth defend everything it's pretty fun yeah and jeff uh, we have one of your companies here neighbor which is the uh, airbnb for storage so Joseph, I don't know if you have a, a few seconds. We'd be great to um, hear about the network effects in Neighbor and how that flywheel really works for you. Yeah, definitely. This is something that it's it's hard to understand until you see it yourself. Like I'm sure a lot of people are reading Marketplace 100 and they're looking at Instacart having 70% of the GMV volume. And that just seems ludicrous, but, but it actually makes a lot of sense, right? Uh, it, it's almost like the, the number one position on the marketplace 100 is always gonna have 30 or 50 or 70% just because of how these, the, the exponential growth works. I, I, I've been amazed year over year looking at neighbor. Um, it's like every year we get done and it's like, oh yeah, that, that was amazing. We did 5X uh, you know, net revenue growth year over year. And then the next year comes along and you do it again and, and you keep thinking the volume is going to increase and, and therefore the growth rate is going to decrease, which is what I think happens in a lot of SaaS uh, style businesses, but it doesn't. It just keeps growing because uh, people keep spreading the word. And especially on the supply side, you start, at least for us, you start to get more and more uh, um, organic sharing there. Um, so as far as, you know, neighbor goes, um, everyone's been talking about, you know, kind of the, the COVID effects. I think we're probably maybe the one business in this room that never had, um, never had to have much of a panic attack during COVID. Uh, you know, we were looking at it and, and 
Uh, I remember Jeff was out here in Utah telling us, hey, this, this pandemic is coming and, and uh, we, we didn't really anticipate it, but when it finally became real in March, we just looked back to 2008 when storage was the best performing asset class and kind of knew that everything would continue to grow. And, th and that's what happened. You had a lot of people that were moving out of cities like New York and San Francisco. I mean, you guys were just talking about how you're running distributed workforces. Everyone's moving out of these major cities and, and moving to more uh, 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 inland cities like Austin, et cetera. And what that does is it drives storage demand. So on the demand side, we saw a huge influx of, of, of demand. Uh, that was only compounded by the fact that people were just spending more time at home. And when you're at home, you notice your home and you start to do things to it. You start to clean out space. You clean out a room for a home office. And then you need a place to put those items. You clean out a room for a home gym and you need a place to put those items. It, it got to the point where all we were talking about, J Jeff's on our board and, and he could tell you uh, what our board meetings sounded like um, for the last year. And it was like, how do we keep up with this demand? How do we get more supply? How do we get more supply? Um, Andrew, uh, I remember reached out to us right at the height of the pandemic last year, uh, towards the middle of the year. I think Andrew, you just bought a bought a an RV or a yes, van. yes, van life. Hashtag van, van life. Van life, and everyone did. You know, outdoorsy boomed last year, um, and and so. Andrew reached out looking for a place to store his van and we were right at the height of this and we almost couldn't help him. It was like an embarrassing moment where, where he was like, I need a space in San Francisco. And we were like, uh, yeah, they're all booked. Uh, we just, we need to find more space. Yeah. Well, he yeah. just, part, he just, he just parked it on the street and it was stolen the next day. So that <laughs> <laughs> no, Jeff, that's not what happened. I, I, I decided to then drive it, uh, you know, to, to Utah. That, that, that was my solution to the, to the problem, to the storage problem. Hey, Utah, Utah, whenever there's a problem, come to Utah. It's a great place to be. Uh, <laughs> Amazing. So, I, 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 uh, think, I think I might have actually gotten the last storage unit on in, in, in all of San Francisco. We, we had to drive about uh, 45 minutes outside the city to actually get the unit, but, uh, but I think we got the last one. So it was, uh, it was a, huge, a huge win for us. Um, so one of the things, by the way, one of the things I want to think about is, you know, we often talk about network effects and, and like Jeff and Joseph were talking about network effects and network effects in neighbor. Um, but we sometimes like just skip over the cold start problem. And I want to make sure we kind of spend, spend enough time talking about that. Um, and I wanted to go to, to Grant at, at Whatnot because it's, uh, it's an early one. And, and I know you guys have some, some interesting thoughts on how to think about uh, the cold start problem. And, and I also know Andrew's writing a book on the cold start problem too. So maybe he can, he can weigh in there too. Sure, uh, happy to pipe in and just to remind uh, people who are listening in, I'll give you a little background on whatnot. Um, we're a live streaming focused um, collectibles marketplace. So you can kind of think about us as a, a social eBay for lack of a kind of a better comparison. We started our business in December, 2019. So the, I guess the cold start problem is, is still pretty vivid in, the, in my memory. And in all honesty, we were still working on various hacks all the way through August to continue to kind of get the flywheel moving. Um, when we initially launched the business, um, we actually started a bit more of a 
traditional marketplace. So if you're to go on whatnot today, you'll kind of see two core parts of the experience. You'll see uh, a live streaming experience where a seller can turn into either a Sotheby's like auctioneer or a QVC like host. And then you'll see a kind of a traditional marketplace where anyone can sell uh, asynchronously. And we got the business started with the traditional marketplace. And, you know, to get these things going, you have to solve one side of the marketplace. And so we first started on the supply side to try and build an audience of consumers. And the way we approached this problem was we scraped data across the internet and came up with um, basically a simple pricing algorithm for how much various collectibles were worth. And we let people purchase those items from us and then would go and purchase them once they were sold from other places and then make sure they were authentic and, you know, in the proper condition. And, you know, this was how we solved this, like the initial kind of supply problem, built out a pretty large audience doing this. As you can imagine, it's pretty operationally intensive. So, you know, it definitely took up a lot of our time. And then slowly as we built up the buy side, we, we actually, you know, when we initially built the marketplace, we launched it and everything and didn't have a full supply side, like opened up and built out in the product. And then we built that out. Um, and we're actually nervous about how, if we opened it up to sellers, whether there'd be a high enough sell through that would retain people. And so we then next approached, how do we bootstrap the supply side? And we kind of, what we did there was, you know, we allowed obviously what people to sell and come in um, uh, and buy from our platform, but we also cross-listed to other marketplaces and would fulfill those orders um, if they were bought on that marketplace, which, you know, it provided, there was a lot of operational challenges dealing with sellers who don't ship things, et cetera. Um, but it, what it did do is it provided really incredible sell-through for our sellers like better than any competing marketplace because they basically had us they could sell on plus any of the marketplace we places we cross-listed to and then slowly through that we ended up opening up the live experience and we had this buyer base we had the seller base and and you know that just amplified the flywheel that we are we started to get turning so that was how we did it we thought very carefully initially like how do we get our first set of buyers and then once we have our first set of buyers how do we provide an experience that's actually gonna keep sellers retained, which meant having a sell-through comparable or better than where anyone else could do. Yeah, great. And I think, I think that's such a, it's such an interesting, um, you know, characteristic of marketplaces where you end up, you know, you, you, you may eventually, um, you know, end up with a much broader, you know, network, but in, in the early days, you're kind of, you know, trying to, 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 to you know, have, have very tactical things to, to bootstrap it. Um, and so, yeah, so, so as, uh, as, uh, you know, Darcy had mentioned, um, uh, you know, that, that's one of the things that, that I'm working on in, in, in a book to sort of abstract a lot of this stuff into, um, into like a cohesive strategy. And so the, the, the book is called the, the cold start problem, um, which basically breaks, um, you know, this framework into a couple different stages, um, you know, where, where that first stage in, 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 in the cold start ends up being, you know, a, a bunch of these like really kind of unique hacks. Like these are things like, um, you know, uh, uh, come for the tool, stay from the network, or, you know, just using subsidies and money to like kind of, you know, break into, you know, the network, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so, so anyway, so I, I, I do think that, um, I, I know that, uh, you know, we also have Eddie um, and, and Goat here, and I know um, uh, Shuram, since you're such a, 
you know, big, big fan of the company, maybe you can, you can, uh, you know, um, uh, kick it off. Yeah, by the way, uh, you know, Andrew, you know, um, just so you know, all of you can go pre-order Andrew's book right now. And, you know, and, you know, if, in, if we won't mind if you take a minute to go to that. Andrew, do you suggest people going and pre-ordering a book right now? <laughs> Thank you for <laughs> Thank you, brother. That's great. Yeah. Um, it's, uh, yeah, the, the domain actually, if you go to coldstart.com, I have a mm-hmm. landing page set up for it. Yeah, so, feel Andrew. free to buy, buy multiple copies, buy one for your friends. <laughs> it's um, supposed to be my job, Shriram. You're, you're taking I know. work here. <laughs> I know, Shriram's the hype man. Anyway, Eddie, yeah. Eddie, go, go for it. Oh. Uh, yeah, no, we actually have a great cold start story if you want to hear it. So Yes, um, go for it, yeah. I mean, sure. you know, bef- before GOAT was a sneaker and fashion marketplace, like kind of Jeff alluded to, we were a completely different business. And we actually pivoted a few times with the, the small amount of money we had. I mean, we, we literally pivoted three, four, five times. We were like Kobe Bryant down low in the paint, just like, you know, ju- juking our investors left and right. But with the money we had, um, and I love telling um, how GOAT was started because Jeff's in the room and I like to make it awkward, but um, GOAT started <laughs> because um, my co-founder, he's been a lifelong sneaker enthusiast and he actually bought a pair of shoes on eBay and um, something he was nostalgic about from his childhood and they turned out to be fake. Um, and so we were just like, how come we're spending hundreds of dollars on a marketplace online and still have to worry if it's real or fake? And so Goat was born because of eBay's authentication problems. So I want to thank Jeff for um, building eBay and <laughs> helping us start Goat. Hey, but hey, hey, hey. <laughs> <laughs> but um, in terms of the cold start problem, I mean, just like um, what everyone was mentioning, I mean, it's the chicken and egg problem. And, you know, we, if you have no buyers, there's no sellers that are going to list anything. If you have no sellers, nothing, um, there's nothing for buyers to buy. So we just had a little, little bit of money. And what we did was we had to become sellers. We bought, you know, I would say a couple hundred of some sought after SKUs in the sneaker market. And we only had like, yeah, we bought a hundred, a couple, couple hundred SKUs. And when you look on eBay, what you notice is that, you know, people will put their sneakers on their bed or on the floor and take pictures of the sneakers. Um, but given we only had like one of every type of sneaker, but we wanted to showcase that we had a robust marketplace. What our um, chief brand officer did was he went to Home Depot and bought um, one foot by one foot sample tiles, like a wood tile, a laminate tile, a porcelain tile. And he photographed the sneakers on these one foot by one foot tiles to make it look like like let's say a Jordan 6. It was the same Jordan 6, but photographed on 30 different tiles. So it looked like we had 30 sellers instead of just one seller where we were just photographing the shoes ourselves. So um, yeah, we just kind of hacked it and pretended like we had a robust seller marketplace so that buyers could trust us. Um, and that's kind of how that was born. So, I mean, Eddie, you, you, what, what was always interesting to me at eBay, we lived in terror of, you know, we were a horizontal marketplace that traded everything. We lived in terror of someone coming in and doing, calving off a vertical and doing it much better. And the one that that did happen while I was there was StubHub, where they charged like four times more uh, big to, to sell your, to sell and buy your ticket. But they did it in a way that was really well tailored to the vertical and got rid of a lot of the angst on fake tickets and things like that. Is, is that your thinking in GOAT? Yeah, exactly. I mean, our whole thing was reducing as much friction from the marketplace as possible, right? Because if you're someone who, let's say you're not a sneaker enthusiast, you're just a, someone who likes fashion, you go on eBay to go buy a pair of sneakers, 
you're, you're, you type in Yeezy and you might see a hundred sellers selling that same exact SKU and size that you want to buy. You have to go through and sift through every seller, look at their photo set, look at the reviews, look at how fast they ship. And then you have to worry if it's real or fake, right? It might take you three hours to buy a pair of shoes and you're still worried um, what you're going to get in terms of um, the, the product. As opposed to on GOAT, we wanted to reduce as much friction from the marketplace as possible so that you just go on GOAT, you see the size and the SKU that you like, you see the lowest price, and you click buy. And GOAT deals with all the messy marketplace issues behind the scenes. Because what we did was we pioneered what we call ship to verify, where when a seller sells something on GOAT and a buyer buys something, the seller actually ships it to one of our facilities first for us to authenticate, quality control it, and actually rewrap it in our own GOAT branding and GOAT box before we send it off to the buyer. So the buyer gets that retail-like experience and we take care of all that messy marketplace stuff so that the buyer just has as little friction as possible when, when buying from a marketplace like ours. Awesome, I wanted to switch over to do some rapid fire questions where we can ask a question and get the answers from all the CEOs on this call. Um, the first question I wanted to kick off is, uh, what would be your piece of advice for other founders looking to start a marketplace business? Steven, I'm going to start with you. Yeah, I think it's really important to identify which side of your marketplace uh, is more rare. And then, you know, Cameo's side, it was go after the supply side, lock them down. And, you know, we believe that supply can beget its own demand. Great answer. Joseph? Yeah, I... I just double down on what we were just talking about this cold start problem. And the only thing I'd add to that is to say, realize that there's, there's multiple cold start phases. So you're going to go through this initial cold start phase where there's this chicken and egg problem. Uh, but then you're going to figure out what Steven said, that there's one side of the market that's dominant and the cold start. Once you have one side completely figured out, the cold start for that other side is going to look a lot different than it did when it was a chicken and egg problem. Thanks, Joseph. How about you, Melody? Um, similar to what they said, I think I naively thought that we'd be able to come in, solve a problem, move on, solve a problem, you know, identify, solve a problem, move on. And the reality is, is you really, really have to maniacally focus. Like I wanted to do so much. And we had to identify that first incredibly important problem, solve it incredibly well, identify the next most important problem, solve it incredibly well, which means going slowly, but really nailing it every time. And being very clear and breaking it down into smaller chunks. Exactly. Great. Um, how about you, Max? Yeah, I think the, the number one thing that we struggled with in the early days and I don't know how common this is, but I'll just lay it out there, was um, it was hard for us to know whether or not the struggle to get traction for the first, it was like nine months, was because there just wasn't, a, there wasn't room for an online marketplace here and the demand side just wasn't interested in buying goods online uh, for wholesale. And how much of it was, it, we just didn't have the supply. And it turns out we spent a lot of time iterating on value props and trying different ways of getting the demand side to buy when really the problem was we just didn't have the sufficient supply and we didn't have the right supply. Um, and so I think it's recognizing that building a marketplace takes 
more patience and product market fit can be more elusive um, in a marketplace business. And I think you have to like be prepared to try to solve the cold start program problem and grind it out. And when um, you say patience, what kind of time frame should people should other founders be prepared for? It's a great question. Um, I mean, it took us nine months. I think we talked to some other marketplaces, and it takes even longer. Yeah. Um, but I think that's the hard thing is like uh, other startups. I think you can get signaled faster um, on whether or not you have something, you know, just by building it and and seeing if people respond to it positively. Whereas with this. Uh, it, it just takes a lot longer. And that's how you end up doing things like the folks that have talked about here of like trying to figure out ways to bootstrap the supply side and get that signal faster. I think that's why it's it's important, either the supply side or or the demand side, whichever you think is is more important to whatever you think your riskiest assumption uh, right. from a product market perspective is. Harder to pull off, but definitely higher reward for those that take on the risk. Because again, the network effects of marketplaces. Yeah, amazing. once it starts working, it's super fun, but it is, it's, it is, it's a grind. <laughs> starting a startup is a grind and starting a marketplace is like a, an extra grind. Yep. Eddie, same question for you. What advice do you have for founders looking to start a marketplace business? I think just solve a problem for a small group of very passionate users. I mean, um, the sneaker community is no exception to that. And even to this day, a majority of our new users are organic users because our passionate community just will keep shouting about us from the rooftops whenever they had a great experience. Of course, conversely is true. If you, they have a ne negative experience, they also shout from the rooftops. But if you play things right, um, we've just been so fortunate to have solved this problem for this initially small group of passionate users. And it's just the market's grown from there. Usually rum. <laughs> um, there we go. Grant, Grant, our fastest growing startup on the Marketplace 100. What advice would you have for founders um, looking to start a marketplace? I know your cold start problem was a, a much shorter condensed time frame. So. <laughs> but it was hard. It was, it was very hard. Like we worked really hard to get it going. I mean, I think my advice would be consistent with everyone's here. I'd probably break it down into two things. I mean, first, figure out what you're gonna make that people are gonna love and really want. Because if you don't have that, then like all of the other pieces don't matter. So have something that is gonna be really valuable to people. And then if you're doing it as a market, and because if that's a marketplace business of some sort, then get really tactical on how you're gonna bootstrap the business to get to scale, to understand whether your hypothesis there is gonna work. You know, I, I should, I'll give this as an anecdote because I think it's interesting. So I quit my job uh, December 5th, 2019. I was, I was working at, at Facebook and, you know, for the first like two to three weeks of the business, we couldn't generate any sales such that, you know, we had like a come to Jesus with, with the team and we're like, okay, if we can't generate any sales for this business, we're just going to have to change it. And we set a deadline of January 31st. And we just, we just pushed as hard as we could until January 31st and pushed on every tactic that we believed would work. And then luckily by around December 28th, 29th, um, we started to get some traction and things started to move. Um, so anyways, I thought it'd be a funny story because you know, whatnot was um, four weeks away from a complete pivot. Because uh, you, know, you, wow. you, you face these problems where you don't, 
it's hard to get signal early on. And so, you know, what, what the reason we set our timeline is that is we felt like we could roll through the tactics that we needed to roll through to validate our hypothesis in that amount of time. And it turns out we were able to validate it and validation came back positive. Um, but, uh, you know, that's why I say have a really good problem that you're going to solve and then get down to the tactics for how you're going to get the marketplace off the ground. And you should be really thoughtful with those because if you can't get it off the ground, none of it matters. What a story, Grant. We did not know that when um, you were raising from us. Uh, that's awesome. I'm glad it worked out. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're pretty we're pretty ruthless if we don't see, um, you know, results, uh, you know, within our hypotheses, then we'll we'll look to adjust our thinking. But yeah. luckily okay. it worked out. So next rapid fire question, and we'll start with you, Grant. Uh, the moment you found product market fit and uh, how you knew. So we went through two phases of the business. We went through the phase where we built the asynchronous marketplace, which looks much more similar to say an eBay or a GOAT. Um, and that business was growing well, you know, 30, 40% a month, something like that. But it didn't really feel transformational enough we didn't feel like we really hit the social side properly um and so we were still pushing and pushing because we didn't think we had the thing that was game changing um then we launched our live video product um and i was the first person to go live in our live video product and i sold out of five thousand dollars worth of funko pops in two hours and we even That's then awesome. <laughs> and so I think at that point we were like 60% sure we had something. Um, and we kept on pushing that and pushing it more and scaling it out. I mean, the big question to us at that point was whether this thing would scale and it would have some sort of repeatable effects. And we kept on scaling out to more and more people. And then, you know, growth continued to go at like crazy rates such that we were lucky enough to be the fastest growing startup this year on the marketplace list. Nice. And then, then something turned, which was all of a sudden, instead of having to work really, really hard to drive growth in the business, we were working really, really hard to catch up to growth. And so our biggest problems were like hiring customer support to keep up with customer support queries, um, hiring engineers to keep up with scalability issues. And so to me, the moment I knew was when my time was spent catching up to growth instead of figuring out how to drive it. Yeah. Um, Steven, how about you? What was it like for Cameo? Yeah, we've got a pretty funny story of both like um, the moment I, I really felt we had demonstrated product market fit and our launch. Uh, we actually launched Cameo on March 15th of 2017. And uh, I was getting pretty nostalgic about it. And I actually saw the tweet that we'd sent out. And, and back to the last question, right? We, we fundamentally believed at Cameo that uh, our supply could be get their own demand. So to get going when we had zero people on the platform or, or zero customers, uh, you, you can imagine pitching a marketplace to talent, telling them that they could connect with their fans and there's no fans. And you could imagine telling fans we're building this marketplace uh, where they can you know get a personalized shout out from the people they love the most, but with zero talent on the platform. So we started with one talent, Cassius Marsh, who is a uh, backup defensive end of the Seattle Seahawks at the time. And he recorded this video for my co-founder, Martin, months earlier, congratulating one of Martin's buddies who was a Nike marketing executive on becoming a father for the first time. And Cassius took that video, sent a tweet out, 
put it to his 50,000 followers on Twitter. Uh, I happen to be in Scottsdale, Arizona, trying to get the second person on Cameo. Uh, Devin and Martin, my co-founders, were in Venice Beach with, um, you know, with Cassius Marsh. We sent this tweet out. Uh, you know, we both rushed to Google Analytics to see what would happen. And there were two dots on Google Analytics, one in Scottsdale, one in Venice, and not a single other person came to the site. And, you know, we were not sure originally if we'd set up Google Analytics properly. So I remember literally, like, signing off the site and the dot disappeared in Scottsdale, and then it came back uh, when I came on. So, like, really embarrassing. At the same time, Cassius, this, you know, defensive end, uh, people started trolling him on Twitter and saying, hey, you're an NFL player making millions of dollars a year. How could you possibly charge people for, you know, to, to talk to them? Like, you're such a scumbag, essentially. So uh, on both ends, like, we were, you know, we were getting no, um, you know, good feedback on the consumer side, which was brutal. And then all of a sudden, I'll, I'll never forget it. It felt like 45 minutes. Who knows how long it was. But this dot popped up in Renton, Washington, which is uh, up near Seattle. And uh, all of a sudden, this uh, this dot's on the screen, and and we think this person might buy. There's literally nothing to do on the site. There's no videos to watch, no other talent. And the dot goes away, and we we're so dejected. And then my phone starts vibrating, and this guy goes, hey, my daughter's favorite person in the world is Cassius Marsh, uh, this player. And her birthday is coming up on Thursday, and I want to get my little girl a video, but your payment processor is not working. So at that, uh, I messaged Cash. He had basically run out on us because he's like, you know, screw you guys. You lost my 25 grand. This business is here. My co-founder, Martin, ran after him to try to save his only client. But we ended up getting this video two or three days later. And when we saw the reaction that this father sent to that video, like immediately we knew if we could make one person feel like that, you know, we could make millions of people feel like that. It was just a matter of, could we make this so fun for the talent that they would do it for that they would do it for free, but they're getting paid. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, I love that. Joseph, uh, rapid fire. How about you? Yeah, not to get too existential, but I've had a lot of discussions with people about what product market fit is. It seems like everyone's got a different definition. You know, some people say it's, it's, uh, you know, NPS score and, and, I'm not sure that is. We've had high NPS scores since the beginning, but you know, didn't didn't have product market fit. That's for sure. Um, I've literally had an investor tell me he's like, product market fit is when uh, in a marketplace is when Jeff Jordan decides to join your board as a marketplace. If that's only true, if that were only true. Um, but I, you know, to answer the question, like I, I'm not sure we did even have product market fit when Jeff joined our marketplace, probably for me, what it was, uh, was when we, we had our target markets, what we thought were our target markets. And we constantly checking the growth on that. And then, and then I go to the team and I'm like, what's this market? What, this is our fastest growing market. And it's not one of our target markets. Like, I didn't know we were in that market and they're like, we're not. Uh, so that's what, that's what product market fit looks and feels like to me um, is when people are, you have this organic engine that is fueling your business in a place that you don't think you are. Uh, that's what product market fit looks like for us. 
I, I agree with that. That 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 was the uh, fascinating observation. You were focused on three or four markets. Growth was good, and th there was this category called other that was on fire. And it's just like, okay, why is other on fire? What is other? And it turned out other is the rest of the country where we weren't focused, which was organic uh, take up. Exactly. Okay, one last one last rapid fire question, uh, and we'll go to maybe we'll go to Melody, Max, and Eddie for this one. Uh, what's the marketplace company you most admire? Uh, maybe we'll start with Melody. Oh my gosh, that's the hardest question. You started with me. It's the end of the clubhouse. We, we got to. I had my there. really beautiful answer for the last one, and now you surprised me. Um, you know. It's, it's so, I love studying marketplaces, obviously, because it's, I spend the majority of my time studying my own. Um, and I'm constantly surprised about the dynamics. I love cruising through Looker, like in the middle of the night and just running queries and like being surprised. It's so much fun. Um, so I, I don't know, I'm going to give a really dumb answer, which is like, I love reading us ones of companies that go public. I love reading about all the different dynamics of the different marketplaces, because for as many theories as you can have around, this is how marketplaces operate. There's that many opposite examples, right? Or as many sort of theories as you can have around take rate and supply versus demand and one side versus the other and all these things and K factor and all the stuff. Um, every single marketplace is a snowflake and they're all so different, you know, almost more than they're the same. <laughs> so it's a total, just like horrible answer to your question, but I do find them to be so different and fascinating and unique and surprising. Um, awesome. So I like a lot of them. Very cool. Okay, Max, how about you? So I was struggling with the mute button. I think I would, I agree with Melody that this is this is a tough one because they are all so different and interesting. But I, I think probably the food delivery marketplaces, um, and the, I mean the one that jumps to mind is DoorDash just because the way that they have just like relentlessly executed and kind of won the space. No offense to anyone who works in any of the others, but it does seem like they're on their way to winning at least in in the U.S. And I think the reason is I worked on Caviar when I was at Square, and it's so hard the three-sided nature of that business and the fact that it's food and it like spoils and if you don't get it there in time the customer screams at you um i think it's just it's so unbelievable the way that they have have built that business to the scale that they have and have continued to solve problems and i so i'm, I'm a big admirer i also think tony's amazing and, and really look up to him so that would probably be my answer he, he is damn impressive i agree yeah, it is one of the most operationally uh, effective companies I've ever seen run. Um, Eddie, how about you? If you could kind of, if you could recreate yourself as the marketplace founder of a, of a different marketplace company, what, what would it be? We are big fans and we look up to Josh Silverman and Etsy. I mean, the way they've harnessed their community, built up that community, and even encourage the community to help out during COVID to create face masks and stuff. Um, and then just their execution, right? Like, I mean, go similar to Etsy, like, we don't try to run a marketplace or build a marketplace at all costs and try to grow at all costs. Like Etsy's profitable. And, you know, we, we like to build a long-term profitable business as well. And so it's just like, 
the model that Etsy's built with harnessing the community and their kind of executional prowess is something that we really look up to. That's amazing. And, and, and such a good place to end. If anybody wants to read more, the Marketplace 100 is available at u16z.com slash Marketplace 100. So this has been fantastic. Thank you so much to, to Melody, Joseph, Eddie, Stephen, Grant, everybody for joining us tonight. Um, it's been a blast talking with everybody. And uh, I hope everybody has an awesome night. Thanks again to everybody for, for participating tonight.